Would you indulge me after a moment of silence with a, a prayer that I'd like to start with? Lord, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about myself, everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about my own recovery, all for a new experience in you, Lord, a new experience in myself, a new experience in my fellows, and a much-needed new experience in my own recovery. Amen. That... Uh, Prayer is uh, something I, it's a version of a prayer that I had gotten from the, uh, one of my heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous, a guy named Don Pritz, who passed this last year. And Don was originally going to be here this uh, weekend. And he was uh, one of my mentors in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, a guy who'd encouraged me to do some things in A that were not popular back in the. Uh, late 70s and early 80s. And I'm glad to have his presence in my life, even to this day. I'm supposed to share, as honestly as I can, my experience with the, uh, with the chapter We Agnostics. And this, is, this chapter, uh, over the years, has meant an awful lot to me. It, it's an amazing... An amazing chapter. It's where I've gotten really in the mood to do some things later in the steps. It, and it, it's a prophecy in this chapter of where, when, and exactly how I will find God. Um, a prophecy of what I will find in, when I work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But like, like most of us... Uh, to some degree or other, I think we, we come here as, as agnostics, even though some of us don't think we are. I've worked, uh, some of the worst agnostics I've ever seen in Alcoholics Anonymous have been members of clergy I've tried to work with over the years. And uh, that sounds funny, doesn't it? But it's really, I've, I've, I've had the pleasure to uh, work with four guys that were members of clergy over the years, and I watched uh, two of them uh, literally drink themselves to death. We, and the one guy was sitting with him. He's drunk and he's weeping because he know he doesn't understand why God won't help him after he's devoted his whole life to God. And, uh, and this chapter sort of unlocks that riddle and, and a bunch of riddles that uh, made this whole thing, this whole concept of God, very uncomfortable for me. I uh, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, with a lot of prejudices about God that I didn't know uh, that I had because I've never my prejudices aren't prejudices they're just right I mean I don't get that they're prejudices it's just the way it is you know and uh, this this chapter helped me to uncover some of that stuff on page 44 I'm going to read a little bit and talk a little bit and when it comes to this chapter, I'm going to read some because I don't know that there's anything I can say that's much of an improvement on what it says in the book. Page 44, it says, In the preceding chapters you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. talks about that with great clarity on page 20 and 21, the, uh, the difference between the problem hard drinker who... So alcoholism sort of stops where the bottle end, where the bottle stops, and then the guys like me that Silkworth refers to as chronic alcoholics rather than acute, the guy that's problems over when he stops drinking. Uh, and I'm the I'm the real alcoholic. I, I get the distinction between that. And I know what I am. It says, and here's this is one of my favorite descriptions of alcoholism. It says two things. It says if when you honestly want to. You cannot quit entirely. Honestly want to. Like, you know, no kidding this time. I really mean it. <laughs> and, I, and I drink again. And I, I was that guy. And I didn't know I was that guy because I, just like Dr. Bob, I could quit for long periods of time if I was medicated enough. But what I couldn't do is I couldn't quit entirely. I had an itch within me that I must scratch. And I was actually powerless to not scratch it. 
If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take. And that was always true for me. That was true for me for years, and I didn't know it. I never got... this. The funny thing about this phenomenon of craving that makes us alcoholics, it's one of the major elements in alcoholism, is that I think it uses my mind against me, so the craving for the next drink, I don't get is a craving. I think it's the appropriate idea. The next drink just seems right to me. It just feels right. It's, it's, a, it's called for. Uh, that's why the test that they talk about in, in Chapter 3 is very ineffective for most of us. We won't, it won't be a good test because some, you know, we go to a bar trying to have two drinks and then shut it down, don't take nothing, smoke nothing, go home. Halfway through the second drink, it becomes very apparent that this is a bad test day. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just that because my mind gets right behind whatever's necessary to satisfy a craving that most of the time I don't even get that I have because I satisfy it. So if you want to, when you want to, you can't quit entirely. Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Well, that doesn't, if you're like me and you're coming to AA, that doesn't sound like good news. I mean, that's, <laughs> oh, yeah, spiritual experience. Oh, you're going to have me out at the airport with pencils. I know it. <laughs> but, and most of us balk at this whole concept. It's funny. Even in spite of, the, of, of overwhelming evidence that we spent, I spent my whole life looking for a spiritual experience. Really. I mean, I drank alcohol and did drugs for a spiritual... Because I could walk into a bar, my spirit would be almost dead. Like I'm locked up inside. I'm depressed. I'm doing poorly here. I don't fit. There's no sense of community. I'm in a terrible, awful state of separation from everybody. And five shots of Jack Daniels and I come out and play. I am connected to the universe. I know a new freedom and a new happiness. I don't regret the past. I don't wish to shut the door in it. I can intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. I, it's just I'm connected. I'm a part of everything is in divine order. It's good. And that's a spiritual experience. I've spent my whole life seeking that. And yet I balk when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and people suggest that I seek it here. It's crazy. And I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because it says we're, you're suffering from an illness. And I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of the long form of the third tradition, the requirement for membership in that. Not in the short form. I didn't come here for a desire not to drink. That's a, kind of a byproduct of, of recovery to me. I came here because, I, as it said in the long form, membership should include all who suffer from alcoholism. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I couldn't drink and I trying to not drink. And when I try to not drink, I start to suffer from alcoholism. And, I, it's, and it's, it's what makes me drink again. Every drink I've ever taken has been medicine. for. It's been, at the end, feudal medicine. It doesn't work like it used to, but it's, it's just it's, it's an attempt to for have medicine for my spirit. I'm seeking a spiritual experience. I'm seeking to awaken something I used to be able to awaken within me with about five drinks. And I can't awaken it anymore. And I'm dying. To one who feels he is an atheist or an agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he's an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. I don't think I could get sober until I became an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. Because as long as I, as I had hope of beating this thing, whether it's with a new relationship or a new job, or this time I've just, by, by new information, I got knowledge now, I understand, I'm going to beat this. As long as I had hope, and I wasn't an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, and I really was not forced to come to the table here with what it talks about. And we agnostics. And then this next line is, I've thought about this line a lot over the years. And I don't know if Bill's trying to be funny or if it just is funny because of the, of the nature of, our, of, of people like us. But he says, he talks about these two alternatives. He says, to be doomed to an alcoholic death. 
door number one. Doomed to an alcoholic death. This has got to be the worst death on the planet. Because by the time it finally kills you, and it's a long and tedious process for most of us, by the time you're finally dead, you've wished you were dead for a long time. Everyone you've ever loved now hates you. They're going to be glad you're dead. As my mother, after I got sober, I was sober a year, and with tears in her eyes, she, she's tell, she felt ashamed of herself. She told me she, how she used to wish I would just die and get it over with. And she told me that with tears in her eyes because she loved me. It's a horrible way to die. Horrible. I can't imagine a way to die where, where your emotions would be putting the screws to you more than it would from alcoholism. So to be doomed to an alcoholic death, door number one, or to live on a spiritual basis, door number two, Bill says for us are not easy alternatives to face. And it's, uh, it's silly sitting here, those of us that are in recovery. Well, of course, well, it can't be. It's a, a simple art alternative. You've got to do the spiritual. I'm telling you, I, I spent for the last 27 years, as of later this month, I have spent a minimum of twice a week in, a, in venues where people are dying of alcoholism. I've, always, I've never had less than two weekly commitments at a hospital and institution. And I'm, a lot of the places I go are like low bottom. Uh, this is not fancy treatment centers. This is where the, for the people who don't have money and insurance that are off the streets. And they're dying of alcoholism. They're not, this is not fancy rehab places. These people, you can look at them and tell they're dying of alcoholism. And yet you present Alcoholics Anonymous to them as a this spiritual way of life. And it's like, it's like, uh, you know, I'm busy. Uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, I'm listen. I'm not writing nothing. First of all, and I listen. Nobody's telling me what to do. Second of all, and, and, and like, I like meetings. I, I like AA, except that I don't like people, and that's a handicap in AA. And there's people in AA, and uh, and they'll choose. Most alcoholics choose. When it, whether it's conscious or unconscious, by their actions, they will choose the alcoholic death because they can't believe it will happen to them. If you were to go to a cancer ward where people, or a hospice where people have been diagnosed as terminally ill, hopeless, beyond human aid, and you were to say to them, you know, there's four million of us just like you who now live productive, happy, useful lives, free from the cancer and this, and this terminal illness as a result of a, cer a certain set of spiritual actions, they would beg you to tell them what to do and they would do it. You do that down at one of those places and they go, tell me about that alcoholic death again. I mean, how bad could it be? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But it isn't so difficult. About half our originable fellowship were of exactly that type. At first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. I hope that. My parents hope that. That this is some kind of stage I'm going through. It's, it's, it's some kind of mental or emotional illness that therapy could fix. That it's something, it, it's, it's because no one understands me and I'm underfinanced. It's, you know, all, I'm always hoping against hope that I'm going to get over this somehow. And I didn't get over it because it's a progressive illness. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I seemed to grow into it rather than through it. But after a while we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. Or else what? Doomed to an alcoholic death. Perhaps it is going to be that way with you. But cheer up. <laughs> we got a way of life here that will make you happier than you've ever been. It's, you're never going to have to die again from this disease. It's going to be really good. And you're going to have a fellowship around you of people that are, you're going to love. And I know that's depressing, doesn't it? It sounds awful. <laughs> cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. Our experience shows that we need not be disconcerted. But if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. 
but we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might. But the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources as marshaled by the will were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. Not lack of religion. Not even lack of faith. Lack of power was our dilemma. We had to find a power greater than we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. In the shortest sentence in the book, obviously. Because I've failed. I've done everything I could do. I've hooked up with every every new thing that came along, every new therapeutic movement or medication. I've tried everything there is, and I've failed. And it has to be a power greater than not only myself, but everything I've ever tried or everything on this planet that I've, has been available to me. Uh, obviously. And this lack of power, I, I didn't realize it until I was sober a while, but I sought power. I was a power junkie. And the, I sought it in sex, because sometimes sex or a relationship or, or a being in love gives you a feeling of validation. It's the, almost the power to rise up again above your own feelings of inadequacy and, you know, that's, that I'm not quite a man or I'm not this. You know, it gives me a validation, power for, to validate myself or at least have an illusion of it. And money. I, I always sought money because money was a power, source of power. Uh, but I could never get enough. And I could get, never get enough love. And I, I was the black hole of love. You couldn't love me enough. I mean, you just couldn't. And I, I, no matter how much money I could acquire or things of props in my life, it never seemed to be enough. And I was looking for power everywhere except where this book later suggests. I, I was talk, talked earlier about the, the members of clergy that I, I tried to work with. And two of them are sober today. They're over sober over 20 years. And they're doing okay. They're hard to, they're hard to, they're hard to sponsor. It's almost like sponsoring, it's like sponsoring an alcoholism counselor. I mean, because they know everything. I, you know what I mean? They're, they're hard people to work with. And I watched these two guys drink themselves to death and it just baffled me. Because if, if what you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous is true that we are sober today only through the grace of God, and that is really my, the, my reality, then wouldn't you think that these men of the cloth would have a leg up on the rest of us? I mean, you'd think that. These are guys that read the Bible and pray more in one day than I probably do in a week or a month, maybe. I mean, these are guys that have dedicated their life to this. Why would... Would they beg God to get them sober and have them free from this deal and drink themselves to death? And why some, as a guy, some pimp comes into AA and says a couple prayers and gets it like that and works the steps and now he's running a car dealership in Las Vegas. I mean, how, do, how does that happen? I mean, <laughs> this man of the cloth dies of alcoholism. I mean, what's the deal? What's that? What's that about? That's crazy. And then I remember, I remember after a couple years around Alcoholics Anonymous, I found myself up in Maine on a geographic, and I, I, uh, I came to in a, in a jail cell up there, and I, I didn't know why I was arrested. I was arrested in a blackout, and I, they brought me into a room, and, and, and this detective was telling me that my only friend in the world, this guy Chris, who'd who took me off the streets, pulled me up from Pennsylvania when there are people trying to kill me and the police are looking for me and brought me to Maine, put me up on his couch, got me a job, really helped me out. That the night before I took a hunting knife with a blade about this long and I opened up Chris's chest. And as the guy's telling me that, I'm looking at my blue jeans and they're purple with his blood. And I just felt like I was going to lose it. I felt like I... I'm going to start screaming, and if I start, I won't stop. But I pushed all those emotions down within me, 
hardened up, got on the muscle, went back to the cell and broke down and started sobbing and fell down on my knees and begged a God that I don't even believe in to please never let me touch that stuff again. And I got drunk the day I got out. The day I got out. So if you're like me and you and you well, these kind of experiences and people say, well, God's the answer. Well, geez. But not for me. Not for me, he's not. And what is it? What's the difference? How come some people come to Alcoholics Anonymous and God turns their life around and other people don't? And I saw, I, I, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1978 desperate enough to start taking some actions I did not believe would work. And some things started happening in my life. And it was, it was years later that I started to connect the dots and understand a little bit what had happened to me as a result of these actions. And I was sitting at home one night and I was watching a, a, just an old movie. It wasn't even a great movie. It was about World War II. And there was, the movie was about the South Pacific. And in the South Pacific in World War II, there were so many islands that the United States could not, uh, did not have the troops to station garrisons at all those islands. So what they did is often they would parachute in an observer and he would set up an observation camp. And the movie was about this guy who parachuted in this little island in the, in the Pacific and and he's with this equipment and he had a radio and tools and a gun and food supplies and everything he needed to set up a base camp. And he, he parachutes in and in landing, somehow the radio gets kind of joggled up or screwed up a little bit. So he sets up this camp and he's trying to get the fleet in and he can't get the fleet. All he gets is this weird kind of static and stuff. So he goes about the business of surveying the island and checking everything out. And every day he plays around a little bit with the radio trying and the, and the antenna trying to get the, the fleet in with no success. And one day, after several weeks there, he's, he's coming over the top of this sand dune. And he gets over the top of the dune and there's the bay and there's the Japanese fleet. And they're coming towards his island. Now he's panicking. He's running down the beach to his camp. And he gets to the camp and he's playing with the radio and he can't get anything and now he's frantic and he remembers that there was a manual with the radio and he starts searching through this duffel bag and at the bottom of this duffel bag he pulls out this radio manual and he starts reading the radio manual and it's describing the symptoms that are with the radio and it tells him a couple things to do with this one tube and this other deal and, the, and the, the, these wires that might have been disconnected and he does everything it tells him to do in there and there's the fleet. And the problem wasn't that the fleet was withholding its signal from him because he had a bad radio or he played with his knobs too much or something. It was not about any of that. It was he had a broken receiver. And the minute he repaired the receiver, he got the power. And that is my dilemma in Alcoholics Anonymous is lack of power. God's grace, I, from my experience, is my divine inheritance. It's my right. The problem is, is that I had a broken receiver and I could not connect with the power. And that's why my, my friends that were members of clergy, the two that drank themselves to death, they drank themselves to death knowing that God was there. Knowing that the answer, it, 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 they would. This one guy was weeping, just like his God had turned his back on. God hadn't turned his back on him. And probably the major thing between him and God was all his ideas of God, because and he didn't understand that they were prejudices because he was convinced they were these old ideas were the right kind. Now some of them may very well be, but on on. On page 46, it asks us to do two things to begin this process. It's in the middle, of the middle of the page. It says, we found that as soon as we were able, first of all, the number one thing, to lay aside prejudices. And my prejudices are all my old ideas, my opinions, my judgments, my preconceived notions about God. 
It doesn't even say that they're wrong. It just says lay them aside. Because maybe as a result of the steps and the spiritual experience that I will have as a result of these steps, I may find that some of those ideas were good. They just don't have any reality until I've had the experience. And it says lay them aside. And, and I, I, some of the guys I work with, one of the first things I'll do sometimes with them is, is to start trying to uncover their old ideas about God and their prejudices. The things that may, might secretly in the back of their mind give them an image of God that He's a guy you can't warm up to. A guy, because I had a lot of prejudices about God. Uh, I grew up in a religious background, and I, I wanted, wanted to be to be square with this. I got to tell you that the church I grew up in did not give me those prejudices. I sought them out, and I sought them out because I listened to what they presented to me with the mind of a chronic alcoholic who hadn't had his first drink yet. And I listened with a self-centered, fear-based mentality. I only heard, I only listened for the things I have to defend myself against. So I didn't hear about a God of love. I heard about a God of judgment. I heard about a God that judged me and he could see in the dark, which was not good. That's a, that's a bad deal, I'll tell you. He could, he could read my mind, which was, oh, that's a hideous proposition. That's worse than... George Orwell's brain police. I mean, that's a... <sighs> could read my mind. Oh, man. I, I remember as a kid, I'd go to confession. Because you got to go to confession to clean the slate. With your whole class, you go. Because Sunday morning, you got to go and have communion with your whole class, and they're watching you. And you can't... If you really want to piss God off, go to get communion with, with and you're without a clean slate. So from Friday morning... I got to go to Sunday morning without thinking nothing, right? And then I can't do it. I can't. Matter of fact, is I is I telling the priest about the the sexual fantasies I had reading National Geographic? I'm having them again. I mean, it's like a bad deal for me. I and I so my, one of my prejudices is that I'll never be good enough. I'm just too good at being bad and too bad at being good, and I'll never measure up. I'll never measure up to God's grace. Now that's not true, but that was one of my prejudices. The feeling that if even that in sobriety, if I really screwed up and I did something that was just uh, just pathetic and despicable, that then in those moments of weakness, that God wouldn't be there for me. And if that if that's true, if I hold on and act accordingly to that old idea, I've just written my death sentence. Because then the only alternative is I'm going to have to be good all the time. And I don't know anybody that's been able to do that. I don't know anybody that's been able to do that. And as a matter of fact, when I need God the most is when, when I've just screwed up and feel the least worthy of His help. When I've just waited too long, it's the middle of the afternoon to eat, and I go into a restaurant, and I'm just nuts, and they don't wait on me right away, and I just, I have a little temper tantrum, and I just tell the waitress what she is, and it's storm out of there, and there's another place I can't ever go to again, and, you know, and I, then I go sit in my car, and I feel like going out in the garden and eating worms, right? That's when I need God's help. And you know, I need God's help at that moment to call my, to have the courage to call my sponsor and tell him what I did. Because what I did is pathetic. It's, it's childish. It, if I would have robbed the place and shot three cops, there'd be a little machismo to that. But what I did is, I, is, is I, am, I, I just, I ranted and raved and made some poor little waitress that works for tips feel bad. You know, and, and it's awful. And it's awful. That's when I need God's, God's grace in my life to call my sponsor and God's grace and strength to go back in there and talk to that woman and tell her how sorry I am that I did that, that she did not deserve that kind of treatment. And I don't know about you guys, but on my own power, I'm leaving town. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not going in there. Right? I'm leaving town. So these prejudices 
is the first thing I have to lay aside. And then the second thing it says, and express even a willingness to believe. And if I can do those two things, the book promises me I will commence to get results even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. And that is really true. I, and yet, I think one of the, sometimes one of the most misunderstood phrases in all the verbiage of the steps is, is the very end of step three where it says, God as we understand it, is the implications from some people get, some of the guys I sponsor, is that they can't approach God until they understand him. And the book says, no, as a matter of fact, don't even try. You're not going to be able to. No one is able to fully comprehend and define this power which is God. So, And why do you want to? Well, I know why I want to. Because if I can understand God enough, I'll be able to run some angles here. You know what I mean? Because that's what I, I... I do that with a boss. I go to work and I'm watching him and I'm trying... Oh, you like football? I like football too. You know, I would have, you know, I'm always running an angle. So I'm trying to understand God to get some leverage, because to get power. I seek power everywhere, except where I should seek it. And it says if I can do those two things, and this expression of a willingness is, is so is such a str- strong beginning for some of us who don't even believe. When I was new, I was living in this, this halfway house for, for homeless guys like me or trying to get sober. And a member, member of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me direction. He said, he said, you must physically get down on your knees every single morning and every single night and ask whatever's running the universe for in the morning for the power you need to stay sober and then thank that, that power at the end of the day knowing that you didn't have it, that it came from something other than you. And I said, I living in this halfway house. So I... I'd go into the bathroom and I'd lock the door and I'd make sure the curtains were covered and I'd take the throw rug and push it up under the crack in the door so nobody could peek under the door and see me pray. You know, I don't, like as if the whole world's wa- waiting to watch Bob or something. You know, geez. And I'd get down on my knees and I'd say, that, I'd, say, I'd say, whatever's there, please help me to stay sober. And I'd, I'd feel bad saying that. I'd feel like a hypocrite. I went to this, back to this guy. I said, I feel like a hypocrite doing that. He says, you've been a hypocrite all your life. What's the difference? Just do it. <laughs> and he's, he's right. I, I was the guy who could would do, say one thing and do something else. You know, I was a flake. And he says, just do it. Act as if. And I started doing it. And I didn't like it. And I, I'd go to meetings and I'd get resentments because people, I'd hear people talk about praying on the can, praying laying in bed, praying driving to work. And I'd say, I went back to this guy. I said, you know, how come I got to pray on my knees? These other people don't. It works well for them. You can tell. He says, well, not everybody has to pray on their knees. Just guys with egos like yours. <laughs> and I get down on my knees every morning and every night. And I have for all these years. Not because God cares. God don't care. I don't do it for Him. I do it for me. Because it is an expression it is the ultimate expression of my willingness to... It's a physical demonstration on my knees of the position I need to take to, towards my Creator. Now, God don't care. God don't love, God love me just as much praying on the can as He would on my knees. But I need to do that for me. And I believe in physical demonstrations. I believe in, in actions being the strongest form of prayer that I will ever have is my action. And what started to happen to me is a result of taking these very simple actions and being open-minded enough to be willing to discard and be wrong about some of my judgments from my childhood about God, some of my old ideas, is that I started to have an experience on this planet that I never had before. I started experiencing these endless series of coincidences that were all in my favor. And it was like all of a sudden I'm having good luck. And it's if you've had years of bad luck, having a little bit of good luck is scary. I mean, it's like it's I used to feel like where I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop here. I'm waiting for somebody it's like as if God's gonna put on his bozo the clown nose and pull the rug out from under me after he set me up thinking it was all I was safe now. And it was a frightening kind of 
thing. And, and it was weird, the stuff that would happen. I got the... I was a couple months sober. And man, I'll tell you, the perfect, perfect job just came to me. I didn't look for it. It just came to me. And it got me out of the halfway house, which was, thank God, because I don't another month there, I might have drank again. I had a one roommate that was smoking pot, and another one was selling heroin. I mean, another month in that place, and I don't know if I'd eventually, out of the wanting to fit and wanting their acceptance, might have worn me down eventually. I don't know. I don't know. Got me out of there, gave me a, a room and board, enough money in my pocket to go to meetings, and I was working as a, as a house manager in a recovery house for teenagers and I was being able to be of service and talk about Alcoholics Anonymous all day at work and get they gave me enough freedom to go to a noon meeting every day and go to a night meeting every night and I had to be back there to close, make sure for sleep there and make sure everything was good at night I'll tell you if you'd if, if you'd have sat if I'd have sat down with a board of sociologists and recovery specialists and psychiatrists and tried to design a, a job that would have been ideal for me at that point in my life, that's the job they would have come up with. And I did that for my first year of sobriety. And it, saved, it probably saved my butt. I had other coincidences happen. I, I, because Just because I quit drinking and start praying and go to a meeting at least once a day doesn't make me emotionally well. I mean, I went through mo like these mood swings that were crazy. I had a mind that would just spin about stuff. And, and st to this day, that's my barometer of how spiritually fit I am, is how, how much I'm in here, how active I am in my head. But I was nuts in my head for a long time in sobriety. And I would get, my emotions would start putting the screws to me over something, and I wouldn't even know what it is. I don't understand what's going on. I just feel awful. And I'd ask God for help, and I'd go to some meeting, and there'd be a stranger there talking about exactly what's going on with me. I mean, exactly. And not only that, he's got his solution. And I, and I realize how wrong I've been. I think that I need to quit my job, and I'm listening to this guy, and I realize i got to go make amends to my boss. And those things, I can't come up with that stuff on my own. I can't. Not when I'm in the middle of it. And I started to get a sense that there was something working here in my life. And, it, and the only thing that had changed is that I invited that power that I didn't even believe in into my life. And something showed up. Some presence showed up. I was over, I was over in London uh, last year with a bunch of people and I... Uh, I, I was delighted to see that there was I, I, there were still parts of London where they still have the gas street lamps, street lights, street lights, rather than the electric ones like we have in the United States. The reason I was delighted to see that is that I, I heard a story 20-some years, probably 27 years, 26 years ago, that really helped me to understand this coming-to-believe deal that we experience here. And the story was about this guy's whose job it was back when all the streets of London were with gas lamps was to go around with a pole with a flame on the end and light those gas lamps. It was before they had the electric starters in those lights, in those gas lamps. And he was called a lamp lighter. And the story was you could climb up to the top of the tallest building in London and look out over the city at twilight. And no matter how hard you looked, you couldn't see where the lamp lighter was. But you could always see where he'd been by the lights. And I could sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous at two and a half years, three years sober, and I, I couldn't see where God is, but I'll tell you something, I could see where he'd been. And I could not only see where he'd been in my life, because it's a little hard for me to see God's hand in my life, but even more distinctly, I could really see where God had been in the lives of the guys that got sober six months after me. The guys that I watched come into detox that some of them were beat, had been beaten up by the cops. Some of them had lost their kids and would never get their kids back. Some of them were so far in debt that you will never live long enough to pay all that stuff back. People who had ruined their lives to such a degree that it was absolutely irreparable. And I see them two and a half, three years later in the back of a meeting with their, their kids are with them. 
Or I see them, I, I go to their weddings and they're getting married and buying their first house. This guy can't even get a credit. What, is he, what are they giving him a loan for a house for? And I watched the hand of something in their lives that, that was so, so amazing to me. And I think those of us that are involved in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsor people especially and show up on a regular basis, I mean, we have a ringside seat for some of the greatest transformations you'll ever see. I mean, we see stuff weekly and monthly in Alcoholics Anonymous that Hollywood would want to make a mini-series about. I mean, really. I mean, people, that their lives turn around so dramatically. And it's easier to see it in you than it is in myself. Because when you try to watch your, look at your own spiritual growth, it's, it's hard to see because the hand of God is slow. Because he's old. I mean, geez. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he moves very, to watch it, trying to watch your own spiritual growth is like standing in the mirror trying to watch your hair grow. I mean, it just, it's growing, but God, it's slow. But I could see it in you. I could see it in you. On uh, the bottom of page 46, there's a line about five lines up. It says, we found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. And that really has been my experience. I, in spite of my tremendous feelings of unworthiness and all the things I knew I did that were out of line, God was very gracious in my life. And he came to me the minute I started to turn my consciousness towards him and begin the process of clearing away the things that stood between me and him. Uh, my, I was just, uh, I was over in uh, Florence a couple months ago and I went, to, I went searching for a statue by Donatelli that I'd heard a friend of mine, Jim, talk about. And uh, I could not get into the museum where the statue was and it, uh, because they had a long waiting list and I would have had to come back two weeks later and I wasn't going to be there in the country two weeks later. But I remember hearing my friend Jim from California talk about walking around this museum and walking into this room and there was a statue of the Mary Magdalene that was unlike anything he'd ever seen. And he said he, when he looked at it, he started to weep. And he started to weep because it Unlike all the other depictions of Mary Magdalene he'd ever seen, that, where they have like the robes and the long, beautiful hair, and she's really pretty, this he said this was not like that. He said this picture of Mary Magdalene, she was etched by pain, and she looked like she'd been turning nickel and dime tricks at the back island alleys of Jerusalem for years, and you could see the despair and the hopelessness and self-loathing in her face. And he said she stood there with her hand out like this, and in through the pain, an expression on her face that said, this could be for me? And he said he started weeping because his relationship with God was exactly like that. This could be for me? After the guy stabbed and the things I did to my mother and father and sister and the sleazy things I did just to get another dollar and a quarter for a bottle of wine. This could be for me. And God does not make hard terms with those who seek Him. But I believe from my experience that God is also a gentleman. That if I want to run my life on self-will and I want to play God and be in charge, He will sit patiently and allow me to do that because He does not... He will not revoke his first gift to me, which is my free will. And I have that choice. That's why in Alcoholics Anonymous it talks about aligning our will with God's. And I don't know about you, I've spent my life trying to imagine that his will is kind of aligning with mine. You know, <laughs> Right? <laughs> when it's really the other way around. Uh, on page... Uh, Page 55 is a, a vision of where, when, and how I'll find God. And it's really a vision of, of this awakening that I'm going to experience as uh, a result of these steps. 
it is the reading of this is not the awakening. It's the vision of the awakening that have the actions will bring about. It's on page 55. It says, actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman and child is the fundamental idea of God. Deep down in me. I used to hear the old timers talk. Guys like Chuck Chamberlain and some of those people used to talk about listening to the still small voice within that God was in them. Chuck used to, he, I saw him in a, after a meeting one time laughing and poking a guy in the chest and say, stop looking for God, he's right there. <laughs> and I don't know about you guys, but when I go with inside myself, I don't run into God, I run into a pack of crazy people. <laughs> I mean, more like a, <laughs> It's like it's like that old satanic thing of legion. I mean, it's legion in there, just you know, chattering and just nuts. I mean, I I, I don't run into God. It's bad in there. Uh, that's why I remember early sobriety. Listen, I was three months sober. I hadn't worked the steps yet, but I was praying and doing some stuff. And I listened to this oh, this woman who'd been sober a long time talking about how she just liked to commune. By herself, with herself and God. Just no radio, no TV. Just enjoyed the company, the presence of myself with God. The way she said it, it sounded like, yeah, God, that's, I'm going to go home and try that. <laughs> Went home and didn't turn the TV or radio on and just going to commune with me. And you know what I did? When it got quiet out here, it got noisy in here, man. I finally ran over to the TV and turned it on after about 30 seconds. I couldn't take it anymore. I was whacked. <laughs> and why? And it in the next sense, it, it, it talks about what's what this deal is. This God that is deep down within me. It say, it says it may be obscured, which is blocked off. It may be obscured by three things: by calamity. Oh, I know about calamity. I'm a living on the edge kind of guy. You know what I mean? I like, I'm the producer of confusion rather than harmony. I'm the guy that likes to have. I, I watched that early sobriety. Some guys took me to comp me to a show, and they had this juggler there that had these poles with plates on, and he had like one on his hair and one in his hand, one on his head, one on his shoulder. All these plates spinning all at one time, and I'm looking at this guy going, "I feel like that." I, <laughs> feel like that's my life, you know? <laughs> no wonder in early sobriety, though, though, you get the look of the unsurrendered newcomer. You walk up to a guy and say, how you doing? <sighs> Hanging in there. <laughs> I said, one guy, I said to him, I said, how you doing? He says, well, guess it's not bad if you don't weaken. <laughs> Oh, no wonder we look tired and early sobriety. I've been running the universe. I've been spinning the place. So it's obscured by calamity, by pomp, which is another word for ego. I get so full of myself and my judgments and my view of the universe and what I think is right and me, 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 that I'm like a glass of water full to the top. There's no room for anything else. And what happens is I just get me between me and God. And I am, the, I am the main source of my blockage. Or as it says in step four, these manifestations of self, of me, that have been blocking me. So it may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, and by worship of other things. And this was a hard one for me to see. I... I you could have put me on a lie detector in early sobriety and said, asked me if I worshipped anything, and I said, I don't know, I don't worship anything. They would have said I was telling the truth. But I, I couldn't see, I didn't understand what worship meant, first of all. And I had this experience, I was about a year and a half sober, and I, I was ending my, my first sober relationship. Now, I don't think there's a person on the planet more self-obsessed than an alcoholic ending his first relationship. I mean, you can go up to a guy like that and say, I just came from the doctor, I have terminal cancer, three weeks to live, and he'll go, you know what else she said, man? And I'm, I'm like that. I mean, that's me, right? I'm just, I'm whacked. And I'm at this meeting, 
And I haven't heard nothing in the meeting. I mean, God could try could be trying to talk to me through the people in the meeting, and I don't hear nothing because the big show is on the inside. You know, it's 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 I'm in my head thinking about what I'll say to her, and then what she'll say, and then what I'll say, and then I'll hit her with this. It'll humble her, bring her to her knees, and she'll realize how wrong she'd been. And and some. And she's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she's not in the meeting. So some hideous force has implanted a spring in the back of my neck that's attached to the door to the meeting. Every time the door opens, it's like this. Right? So it's hard to hear anything. God could try to be talking to me through the people in AA. I don't get it. And you can't pray when you're like that. I mean, you're just, it's, you're crazy. It's too noisy in here to even focus and I end up going out to coffee after the meeting with this guy from Glendale California who's sober 28 years and him and I I have searched for this guy too I can't I've never found him since then but I, him and I ended up in this uh, coffee shop and I started telling him about this relationship for 20 or 30 minutes I mean until his eyes have glazed over <laughs> <laughs> And he listened very patiently to me. And when I was done, he said some things that just rocked my world. He said, he says, kid, you ever thought about the first commandment? I said, ah, I'm not really into that. He says, yeah, I know. He smiled. He says, yeah, I know. He says, you and I are a lot alike. He says, guys like us, we never get past the thou shalt not. He says, but I think the Ten Commandments were originally written as statements of spiritual cause and effect. And, and when they were translated out of the Aramaic, they, and the Greeks did something to them, and they changed the, the way they're presented. He said, but I, he said, I don't think it's, they're like you think. He said, the first commandment is, is today in the English is, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have false gods before me. He says, I, I think God, it's okay with God for you to do whatever you want. He said, "It's absolute, you can put anything you want between you and God. It's perfectly all right. The problem is, you've just put something between you and God. You've just obscured the light. And you will live in the darkness of your soul. And he said, when you worship something else, worship doesn't mean to bow down to. Worship simply means to obsessively turn your consciousness towards. And he said, if you want to know what you worship... At the end of the day, make a pie graph of everything you've been thinking of, and the thing that owns the pie is what you've been obsessively turning your consciousness towards. When he said that, I could picture this pie graph with a little sliver for AA, a little sliver for work, and the rest of the pie was her. <laughs> and I wish I could tell you that since that time, I've never done that again, but I've, sometimes it's been work, sometimes it's been... It's it's been a, it's an idea that I must make someone see how wrong they are. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's people that don't do AA right. <laughs> Whatever it is. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's a Harley Davidson. It's been it's been a lot of weird things for me over the years. Things that I think are going to give me power. And it's every, everything that I ever turn my consciousness towards obsessively seeking it desperately is because I have an illusion that's going to validate me, shore me up, give me a sense of security, that it's going to do for me what only God can do for me. And I look everywhere else. For faith but in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as, the much, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. And it's funny, the only other place that it talks about searching fearlessly is in the fourth step. A fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. And oddly enough, it's not until the fifth step promises that it promises that we will have a nearness, a sense of nearness to our Creator. And it happens because I've had to search within myself to, as Chuck would say, to uncover, discover, and discard the things that are blocking me from God. The judgments. 
the things that I keep keep me with it, having a death grip on my life, the fears, the things that keep me in the driver's seat because I can't let go of the wheel because this is going to be awful, and the things that keep me remorse and the, the sexual excursions and the things that I've where I've used and hurt people and done harm, where I render myself feeling like an unworthy receiver of God's help and His presence. These things within me. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but He was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality, and what a tremendous word for God. The great reality deep down within us. I, my first sponsor, uh, such a, a loving guy, and I, I was so crazy in early sobriety. I would call him up with these crises every other day. It's, it's you know the police are going to find me, and I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to lose this job. I'm going to be homeless. So it's going to be bad. I, I feel a brain tumor growing. I mean, it's just you know one thing right after another. Just you know, it was bad. And he would always do the same thing. He would always say to me, "Wait a minute, is everything okay right this moment?" Yeah, but by the end of the month, right this second, is everything okay? Well, yeah. He says, good. When it's no longer okay right this second, you and I are going to have something to work with here. But let's stop cleaning up the wreckage of your future. Let's stop (laughs) solving problems that haven't occurred. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to bring me to the only place I can find God talks about it in chapter 5 it says there is one who has all power that one is God may you find him in a place that most of us seldom visit now (laughs) and he's trying to bring me back to right in the present where God's presence is where I'm okay and this this thing that this book implies that this has always been inside of us but it's been we've been blocked from it, I think is really true. I have a copy of a letter here from that was written in the early sixties from Carl Jung to Bill Wilson. And uh, when I first read this, I, it just floored me. And, and Bill Wilson had written Carl Jung uh, a letter because he he just to tell Carl Jung what a significant part he had in the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those of you that are familiar with our history know the story of Carl Jung and Roland Hazard, who, who Carl gave a certain piece of information to, to Roland that, that, that brought him to a point of helplessness and hopelessness where he eventually came back to the United States from Switzerland and sought God and became a member of the Oxford group for a while and had a period of sobriety as a result of that. Not permanent, but a period. And... Uh, Bill Wilson wrote him this letter and oddly enough Carl Jung received this letter at a time when he was very depressed at a time when he felt like his life had no like he'd done no good after all the things he did he founded Jungian psychiatry I mean he's helped a lot of people but he he felt he received this letter in a state of desolation and he wrote back to Bill he says your letter has been very welcome indeed I had no news from Roland Hazard anymore and often wondered what had been his fate. Our conversation, which he has so adequately reported to you, was an, had an aspect of which he did not know. The reason that I could not tell him every, everything was that in those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I said. I had found out that I was often misunderstood in every possible way. Thus, I was very careful when I talked to Roland. But what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. You see, his craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness. Or as expressed in medieval terms as a thirst for a union with God. I have always thirsted and hungered for the God within me, lost and misdirected, thinking that, thinking that, and misinterpreting the vacancy, as as most of us do. I, 
One of the things I do with the new guys I sponsor that are single is to convince them that what they're feeling, that it's not a, it's not a woman-shaped hole. I know it looks like it. It's not. It's, it's not a Harley Davidson-shaped hole. It's, it's not. It looks like it. That it is a God-shaped hole. It's a God vacancy. Because I am, I am separated from the God within me. And it says in the last analysis, it is only, only there that he may be found it was so with us. I looked everywhere else. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I, 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 have, I went everywhere first before I came to A. When they say A is the last house on the block, they're not kidding I mean, I tried everything. I, I, every, I was everything from Ram Dass to Rum Dumb by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I had primal screamed. I'd been hypnotized. I, it, it didn't keep me sober, but I barked every time the doorbell rang. I mean, it, I tried everything. Every medication I tried. Oh, God. Gestalt. I, was, I loved Gestalt. I liked the moating. I was uh, tried rational motive therapy, transactional analysis. I looked everywhere else. And then I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I look everywhere else for power. Be a DCM. Be the chairman of the roundup. Get the right relationship. Get the good job. Be real visual. Get everybody to like you. If everybody in AA thinks you're a good member of AA, hey, you'll probably be a good member of AA. And then go home and be depressed. Go home and feel isolated and alone and often have those thoughts of what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And it wasn't until I was sober almost five years that I started this process, that I started cleaning, clearing away the things that stood between me and God. I started dismantling the judgment machine that is the essence of my will, the thing that keeps me on the throne of judgment playing God, and you can't play God and find Him and be connected with Him. They're mutually exclusive positions. And it was only in the last analysis where I looked everywhere else for validation, security, and power in sobriety, in Alcoholics Anonymous, that in almost five years of sobriety, scared for my life, depressed, desolate, full of resentments as I started to dismantle the judgment machine in step four, as I started to look to see how wrong I had been about all these people on my resentment list and how wrong I had been about my fears and, and the people I wouldn't face and, and became willing to find out I was wrong by facing them in step eight and nine and realize that this universe is different than I'd ever thought it would be. And it was only then that I started to find some sort of permanence permanent relationship with a power greater than myself that kind of that, that kind of wanes and it kind of goes like the tide. Some there's some days, man, I just get me a tent and a tambourine and there's other days I don't even know if you see there. God, you better be there because I really need you. And that seems to be my experience with God is it kind of kind of ebbs and flows this this experience with him, this conscious contact. Sometimes it's real conscious, sometimes it's unconscious. But he has always been there. He has moved into my life. And I'll, t I'll tell you a little story. And I'm going to shut her down. I don't want to hear Don this morning. There's a when I was new in sobriety, a guy gave me a set of tapes that it was not AA tapes. It was it was my boss, and he was trying to make me into a better employee because I I was a little I was a tad self-concerned on the job. I. Uh, which doesn't make you doesn't make you a team player, I, uh, but I gave me this set of tapes, and it was by a guy named Earl Nightingale, and it was called Lead the Field, and it was not AA stuff, but there was a story on there that blew my mind, and it was according to Earl, it was a true story, and he he told about this guy who who grew up in South Africa, and he had inherited a a ranch, and it was a nice ranch, I mean. Uh, a ranch that would have served him and his family and kept them in good stead and financially, materially secure for generations. But he inherited this ranch at a time when the diamond boom was on in South Africa and he heard the stories and saw the evidence of these men becoming mega 
Bill Gates, Rockefeller, rich overnight. And the more he heard their stories and saw their wealth, the more dissatisfied he became with his own life and his ranch. Till one day he sold it. And he went and took the money from the sale of the ranch and he went out into the bush to strike it rich. And he never did. And he died out there after many years, broke and bitter and alone. And it came to pass that he sold the ranch to these developers and one day they're moving some rocks around they found this rock and it's a weird looking rock and they didn't know what it was. They took it to a guy and it was a large uncut diamond. And they started to investigate and they found out that this ranch was the largest diamond deposit ever recorded in South Africa. And these brothers, they become like mega, they become two of the richest people on the planet like overnight. And they're sitting around one day and they need, now they have to, this huge company to, to mine, to cut, to market, and distribute these diamonds throughout the world. And the one brother says to the other, says, well, what do we call our company? And the guy says, well, let's, let's name it out of the, after that poor, pathetic guy we bought the ranch from. What was his name? And the guy says, it was De Beers, wasn't it? And they call the company De Beers, which to this day is the, the largest marketer of diamonds in the world. And I'm hearing that story and I'm thinking to myself, I'm that idiot. I'm looking everywhere else. I'm looking everywhere else. And the book says, in the last analysis, I will find him as a result of a searching and fearlessness within myself. I will find the great reality in the last place I would ever imagine, deep down within me. The book says it was so with us. Thank you.